In season four of Franchise Findings, we're gonna go through the 2022 data that we collected from franchise disclosure documents, FDDs, SBA franchise loans, franchise work conversations, and directly from franchisees themselves. So we'll give you an update on what franchises have emerged from the pandemic, like a phoenix, and which ones have really struggled and got hit hard during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe to our, our podcast as well as leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Hey, you have Patrick Finaro here, co-founder at Vetted Biz and Visa Franchise. Very excited to have on John Usher, who I've known for the past five or so years. Early in our history of Visa Franchise, we were at an Immigration Lawyers Association conference in Orlando. Uh, I met John, former franchisee of McDonald's, multiple locations, Moe's Southwestern uh, Grill, uh, franchise attorney, uh, immigration attorney. So really just a ton of overlap for what um, we do at both Vetted Biz, which is more of a data media company, as well as Visa Franchise, which acts as a franchise consultant for those that are seeking principally the E2 investor visa. So John, really appreciate you joining today. A couple of strange guys, huh? With an <laughs> intersecting interest in uh, franchising and immigration, so. Yeah, I mean, there's gotta be a few people like us. You're more, you're obviously on the legal side and we're more kind of on the business financial side, but I, I don't, I've never met another attorney like you that really focuses on the visas and the, the franchise law aspect. Yeah, it's kind of kind of how life unfolded. If uh, you wanted me to go through my franchise history, it started, I think, about the age of 15 when I found out my parents were going to get a McDonald's franchise. And that was a long time ago in probably early 70s. Started working because I knew eventually we would get a, our own store and would be working in it. And uh, that happened and my parents got a franchise and we moved from Florida to Mississippi and uh, of course worked in the family business and uh, went to law school and when I was finishing law school my father died and we had to obviously consider what we were going to do at that point me being the oldest child my mother at the time being what I thought was a very old age of her 50s that I needed to jump into the business and kind of help her. So um, that's what I did and became a McDonald's franchisee. I was probably 23 or 24 at the time. Wow, was so probably one of the younger uh, franchisees. Yeah, kind of kind of weird to be the, the kid on the block, but we managed and um, added another store in Alabama. And um, as time goes by, as it does, we saw an opportunity to come to Florida and we did that, came to Ocala and, you know, something I was going to do for a year or two, just to help her out. 25 years goes by <laughs> kind of done with, um, the McDonald's in terms of corporate structure and felt like I wanted to do something else. We did, we sold the stores. We had about nine stores at the time we sold in 2000. When you started at 23, 24, how many stores were you uh, operating? We had two at that time in Mississippi. Wow, okay. So kind of thrown in and, and learned the mechanics of being a franchisee. And certainly over the next 20 years, we built stores, we bought stores, pretty much saw all aspects of the franchise business. 
and also like what your role as like an owner operator is very different if there's like one or two stores or nine stores and you're actually looking to, to develop uh, more locations and deal with all the real estate components, I imagine. Yeah, it's a learning experience and it was certainly good to be exposed to all the different um, possibilities with business. But it just got to the point too that um, you're always an easy target as a McDonald's franchisee in terms of customers and lawsuits. And then you're dealing with McDonald's, which is a certainly very successful, but very corporate business where people are very corporate focused and um, just thought it was time to do something different. So we sold those stores. But, you know, one of the things that separates me in terms of legal work with franchising is I've, I've taken the garbage out to the dumpster and <laughs> I've dealt with, uh, you know, making sure robberies don't happen. It, you know, everything in between. Uh, I think we experienced pretty much everything along the way. And so I've got a different perspective than your normal franchise lawyer, I would say. Well, you know what really goes wrong? What not can go wrong in theory? <laughs> yeah, I think I experienced a lot. I'll put it that way. My brother started his career at the management training program at Restaurant Brands International. And part of that program, he worked like eight or 10 weeks at a Burger King. And that definitely was a positive experience for him. And some of his, um, I guess, classmates or people in his cohort didn't make it and they didn't they didn't advance in the training program just because they couldn't deal with uh, the restaurant operations and uh, the corporate office did not want them uh, being in the business if they couldn't really work at, 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 a, at a Burger King restaurant, uh, which I, I, I applaud and probably more franchisors should, should do that for, for their executives. Yeah, um, I would agree with you. Um, there's nothing like being in the trenches for sure. And yeah, that's, that's especially true with, I think, prospective franchisees when they're considering a franchise and involves dealing with the public. When I work with those people that are evaluating their franchise options, I always want to get their background and, and kind of understand where they're coming from, what their experience is, because my finding is that um, people who have had been in their own business know a lot of the reality of what comes with being in business, the good and bad. Whereas if you come from a, a government sector, you've got an idea of what's going on with a, with a franchise as you deal with people, but it's only from that one side of the counter. And it is a different animal and it's not for everybody. So, And you can go home at five or six and be kind of totally done and not have to uh, worry about potential issues of your business as the business continues to operate. Exactly. And for most of the clients that you advise now on, on the franchising side, or are they looking to go into business for the first time and open up a, a single franchise location? Or are they looking to open up multiple locations, kind of like what you you did with your career with uh, McDonald's? Typically, people are looking at one location if they're thinking more, most of the time I tell them, don't do that. I, I think there's uh, always an opportunity to grow if something's successful, but don't bite off more than you can chew. So much of the time, as I'm sure you know, people people are using their heart 
more than their head when they're making franchise decisions. And it's a, easy to get ahead of yourself. But rarely do I think it would be a good idea for somebody to, to do a multi-unit deal or I'm not in favor really of market development deals unless you are just more than 100% sure it's going to work because the incentives just aren't worth the risk. Yeah, exactly. You said that well. You you're the one that's footing the bill, where the corporate office is is benefiting quite a lot with the capital that you're putting at work. If it's a major area development deal, well, even if you're doing one unit, you know, I tell people it's going to be your money and your sweat building out somebody's brand. So doing that for one unit is one thing, but because there's a discount if you do a multi-unit development deal, most of the time that market isn't going to go anywhere. It'll be available if you're doing well, the franchisor is doing what they should be doing, then you're mutually going to move ahead. So, you know, to get a $10,000, $15,000 discount, if you sign now for two or more is, is never worth it to me. So, yeah, That's what I said. It seems a bit like an agency issue where you have a franchise development guy who's selling and he's going to get compensated more if he gets someone to commit to three territories right away as opposed to just one. Yeah, we'll look at it from the franchisor's perspective. You know, any money I have in the bank today, and if you have two or three years to build out, you've got the time value of that money. If it doesn't work out, you're ahead. And if if it does work out and they do build, you're still come out ahead. So that's a that's a win-win for the franchisor as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I've heard a couple a couple examples of franchisors that kind of they had like say 10 corporate locations, they started franchising, they awarded 15, 20 licenses, and they gave like this one case that comes to mind in the ice cream space, gave a area development for a, a big metropolitan area. And it was a 10, 10 year contract and they just didn't do that well. And they're like, shoot, we would have loved to just do this ourselves or bring in someone that opens one location. And then we see that there's a mutual fit and then they continue opening multiple locations from there. Yeah. When I occasionally do some work for franchisors, I'm, when I'm looking at people that are potentially going to be franchisors, I want to know what, what, uh, their attitude is towards growth. And, you know, there's healthy growth in the franchise business and there's unhealthy growth. And if, if you aren't doing a good job as you're rolling out a lot of units, what good does that do? You need to have some discipline, I think, as a franchisor and in terms of how you're developing. And I'm always suspicious if people are growing just wherever. It makes sense to me that you should concentrate on a certain area, build and build from, from there. If you're going to be in Nevada, also we're opening in New Jersey and whatever yeah. what kind of support are you going to get? And you know, as well as I do, one of the things that I tell people when they're looking at a franchise is you got to look and really determine if the franchisor is committed to selling a special product or providing a special service, or are they in the business of being a franchisor? Some people just, they live on the, the franchise fees and, and paint a big That's picture. That's what I was going to say. The beauty of the franchise disclosure document, what is it, item 21, it's usually an exhibit. You can usually see the breakdown by what they're getting from the franchise fee line item and then what you, what they're getting from the royalty fee. 
And it's it's usually one of the extremes. It's usually 90% royalty, 10% franchise fee, or 90% franchise fee, uh, 10% royalty. That's what I'm getting at is what is their real business? Are, are they just serial sellers here today, gone later, paint a big picture? I think it's real important for people to recognize that everybody's not starting with the same business goals. So part of the scrutiny. And then also, you know, looking at the churn rate, because you have some established franchises, like a major tool franchise that has just a really high transfer rate. And they're getting that clip every time there's a new franchisee coming in, new fresh blood, they're getting it. What I believe is like half the franchise fee. But if you're doing 100, 200, 300 transfers a year, that's that's pretty sizable uh, amount of, of cash that's going in the, the franchisor's coffers. Are the revenue, where are the revenue streams? And, you know, what you're talking about is so important because people get into this business to make money. Franchisees, that's fine. Everybody has financial considerations. But you have to be or you should be diligent in knowing the franchisor you're dealing with and these kind of things. And I think the points you're making and that you do in your business is forcing people to look at a little bit of the financials more than they typically do. We always tell them work with an accountant. You need to do pro formas. You need to understand. Yes. You need to understand your exit strategy. You know, it's not just I'm going to do this tomorrow and make money and I'll figure out the rest of it later. That's kind of a recipe for disaster if you ask me. So what you're talking about with um, with the information that you provide on the vetted side of things, where, where you're pointing out what is the value going to be down the road based on the industry or other similar businesses, that's yeah. pretty vital information. Um, What's the resale value? Because if, if the midpoint investment's 200K and franchises are regularly selling for 400K, okay, that makes sense. But there's a lot of franchises, especially in the food side, where if they're not benefiting greatly from the sale of the real estate component, the business itself sells at a fraction of what the initial investment was. So it's like if you're not making it big on the selling the trip, the doing the triple net lease market, and there's not some other angle to the business, you have to really question, okay, wait, does this business make sense? Like I'm opening it for 500K and I can only sell it for 200K. But that doesn't add up. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And I really urge people to think about their exit strategy before they sign. You should know, are you in it, you know, cash flow? Do you want to have something to sell? Is there passing the business on or not? And I think it's easy for people not to consider the things we're talking about. And it's, it's, it's too bad because once, you know, you've signed the document, you've committed so what I've seen, like typical franchise agreement, say 10 years, and you'll, you'll know more than me, but the, the average franchisee does not stay the 10 years. It's more like a seven year uh, commitment where they're then selling to someone else, closing, or they negotiate with the franchise war and they're running the business as an independent business in the same industry. But the, you got to plan for wh what's going to happen yeah, ideally after that 10 years and everything goes great and you renew the contract, but in practice, it's more like six, seven, eight years that there's going to be a, a, a pretty significant event and a transition. I think um, the grass is always greener on the other side and there's such a temptation to believe I'm going to be my own boss. Everybody makes money. 
But the reality is, like you said, that there's a burnout attrition rate for, for different reasons. But, um, you know, when you get to that crossroads, the terms are set and you're going to have to live with whether whether does a new franchisee pick up the remaining balance of that term or do they get a new term? Who has to pay? That's going to factor into the sales price if if I've got to pay fees to transfer or pay new franchise fees. But everybody tends to think, um, I just want to get in business. I want to get in business now. It's all the same. That'll, that's okay. And it, it's really not. You have one opportunity to negotiate some things, and that's before you sign. And the, the saying is, if, if you have to look at those documents later, it's probably because there's a problem. I think if people appreciated that fact that, you know, when you sign and you're signing those documents, typically, you know, two, three, four hundred pages, there's a lot of items in there that uh, are, are slanted to make sure you're on the hook as a franchisee. Franchise overpays a lot of money to get those documents done. Risk is going to be shifted to the franchisee. And you essentially are saying, I agree to everything, everything that's in here, I'll be bound by. And, and the unusual thing with franchising is, and it's understandable because franchisors don't know the future and what they need to do. They need to be able to make adjustments. But you're basically saying, I'm agreeing to any changes you want to make along the way in terms of any standards or any shifts in business you want to do. So you're really signing what I call a contract of unknowns. You're taking a big leap with any franchise. And oftentimes like a personal guarantee. I had a, um, a franchise, former franchisee on, put his head down, worked 50, 60 hours a week. It just didn't work out. The business wasn't working out on the territory. The franchise model is flawed. And he was trying to rally other franchisees in the network and kind of work through it. But he then got hit with a lawsuit for royalties, unpaid royalties of, of 18 years. And even if the business went bankrupt, he signed a personal guarantee to that franchise agreement. So he, he was liable for hundreds of thousands of dollars of royalties for a business that did not make sense and that he gave his best effort. And what I see is just greed from the franchisor side, pushing this guy into essentially a bankruptcy to get as much money as possible. I would agree with you. And that's one of the things um, when people say, well, you know, do I need an attorney to look at it or anything? Liquidated damages is a term they should be familiar with. And whether it's present in a franchise agreement or absent tells me something about the mindset of the franchisor. Liquidated damages is basically saying both parties agree that if you as a franchisee break or breach the contract, we are going to use the following formula to determine what you owe us, meaning those uncollected future phantom sales. And if I see that um, there's something in there, I, I certainly always point it out to the, to the prospective franchisee, but I'm much more impressed when it's not in there because it indicates to me they don't have a desire to come after me if this business doesn't work. I've never understood other than it being pure greed. If somebody is in a position where they've lost money, their business has to close, you're going to pile on 
and try and grab every penny you can. It makes no sense. People go in, they're using good faith. It's ridiculous. They're using their efforts, they're using their money, and if it gets to a breaking point, and you and I know it does happen, to, to have the audacity to kind of seek to inflict more harm, um, I, I just, I find that appalling too. And that's part of why my business is focused, my heart is kind of with the prospective franchisees. You don't understand these things, people get whacked, and it's, they're off the rails, and it's a sad situation, so... There's a big information asymmetry and we're trying to help. We're trying to work through that at Vetted Biz for prospective franchisees. But, I agree. you know, had you known and if it was easy to understand the lawsuits, not just in the, the franchise disclosure document, but there's other lawsuits that don't have to be disclosed in that. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to know that the franchisor you're about to sign up with has sued 10 franchisees over the last five years and sued them for these reasons. And where could, a typical person that's leaving a government job or maybe a mid, mid-career executive that's done an amazing job in their industry but has never bought a business before, um, mm-hmm. that's not something that they're going to necessarily be looking at and, and diving into. Yeah, I think with uh, what you're saying is, is certainly true. It's not that hard, though, to look at the litigation that is disclosed and get a sense of, the appetite to go after franchisees or how many franchisees feel like um, they've been wronged to the point that they have to bring action. And you got to put it against, if a franchisor has 2000 units, there's going to be some litigation. It happens in our world. But if you see the same kind of allegations or you see them coming after, um, well, we're talking about uncollected fees and everything, then you know they're aggressive. And there are some. There's there's one I'm thinking of that I think files actions that are you know, almost weekly against franchisees. They're gonna, yeah, they're I looked at a fitness concept recently, and um, it, it was disclosed, and I guess it's item three where they have litigations, and it disclosed like multiple times, like at least two times where they brought a former franchisee into bankruptcy. And that's in the FDD, and uh, the company is is making cash flow above a million dollars a year, where this guy is going bankrupt, and he's it's just it's it crazy that um, it's 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 sick. I think. I mean, that anybody would it is. feel the need to go to that degree to you know ruin somebody for for what. I mean, they don't really need that money. It's not because they did anything wrong. They probably just ended up in a bad situation that they couldn't get out of. So that's not a time to kick somebody. I think we both agree with that. And that's and also got to look in the mirror. Like a lot of these systems, it's just the model's not that good. And uh, they failed not because of the location nor the operator, but it's just a flawed business model. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Uh, it's not necessarily some individual did something wrong. It's just, it wasn't going to work no matter what. And uh, you and I share these same philosophies. And I think that's kind of why we do what we do is be smart, have your eyes open, consider these things, do it now. Um, I'm amazed. I, I sometimes tell people, if you buy a house, you'll, you'll get a home inspection. You'll spend the equivalent of a, amount of money on a franchise just 
because you believe the ice cream really tastes good. Pay pay the inspector, uh, pay the uh, franchise attorney and the accountant to do a proper inspection. Yeah, I mean, I try um, to point out things where they may have an opportunity to save some money, so it offsets my fee. If you yeah, if you deal with somebody and you can say, you know what, talk to them about the uh, transfer fee. You know, you can do something where they'll give for an event that's not going to happen for 10 years. They may agree to it. Well, you get your money back then is, is what I hope. Yeah. And it could happen in three years. It could happen in five years. It could, you know, happen a lot longer, but that I could just, be significant. 10K, 15K of savings there. That's what I mean. It, it, it all depends, of course, on the franchise or you know like i do it's it's that teeter-totter of who wants who more how much are they willing to negotiate um it's certainly gonna vary but um you shouldn't miss the opportunity to potentially do yourself some good so understand the franchise document understand the commitment you're making understand how the risks are shifted to you and try and structure things that may save you a little money, potentially. I, I just think way too many people don't go in with the proper mindset and, and as much knowledge as they need, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm actually in the process of writing a book. I haven't, I haven't told you this, John, but I'm writing a book on, on franchising and basically how to buy a franchise, how to acquire an existing franchise. And the number, the only advisor that's really required in my view, is the franchise attorney. And if it's a retail location, a real estate attorney to review what you're signing a lease, um, the lease for. I think so. And I also always check with people to see if they have an accountant, if they've got somebody capable or if they're capable, they can do the kind of things you're talking about. Look at the numbers, do the analysis. Yes. You should certainly do your pro forma. You should know that, but there are other Financial. Any business needs a pro forma. We've seen sometimes the financing specialist, um, if they're, depending on the firm, can do a pretty good job with the pro forma, but just have to make sure that the interests are aligned and they're not like overstating the numbers just to get like the SBA loan approved or just to get the uh, the loan across the finish line. Right. I think um, one of the things I do also is, is point out that people the value you have as a franchisee to the franchisor. Take the uh, fees that you will pay them over, say, 10 years. And I do that calculation sometimes with people. Um, you're bringing in that much money to them. And when you do it over 10 years, um, it's pretty significant. And so you need to appreciate your own worth and what you're bringing in. I think that gets underestimated. And that's true of everything because when they have a $52 a month software fee and 112 yeah. whatever this and and 78 for that there's a tendency to gloss over those things but you're looking at you know whatever 300 a month and they have the right to increase that you don't realize that 300 dollars until 300 dollars is important to you um exactly or the you, next economic uh cycle takes a downturn and you're like i need to reduce all my costs oh shit i can't reduce this one because yeah, i think i'm I looked contractually at obliged to, to pay this fee i looked at one restaurant um and i think they were collecting 
I think it was more than 70% of the revenue that came in, they were nicking one way or the other, meaning they, they, uh, they were supplying goods. So they're going to take <laughs> the supply chain. Then the software, they own the software. You're paying a fee on that. There were other elements in it where if they could take a portion, they did. And so it doesn't end up I'm paying them 6% or 7%. The real number, I think, was in the 20s. So I've seen some commercial cleaning agree. franchises where it's like up to 20, 25%. And it could be worth it depending on what the franchisor is doing. If the franchisor does all the marketing, all the sales, and all you've got to do is serve the client and, and find employees, okay, you, you could pay a lot to not have to worry about any sales for like a service-based franchise. But if you still have to do all that, you know, then you have to really question, okay, is this, is this worth it? And over a 10 year period, they're making 300 K. Um, I don't see, I don't see how that much value, I, I would not pay someone 30 K a month for what they're providing me 30 K a year. I should say a lot of this, there may not be a right or wrong per se. It all depends on the situation like you're talking about. So I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily wrong, but it has to be looked at in light of the particular business you're in and what they're bringing in yeah. um, to the table. And then you look at things like indemnification, where if they're supplying all the software and doing everything, but they'll typically say, you need to uh, indemnify us for any action. So if there's a software privacy breach, credit card stuff, you have to use their system and do things their way. But if there's an issue and they get sued, you're to um, defend. Indemnification can be fair in some situations and others not. But that's an easy one that I think most people gloss over um, is is that provision. Yeah, and I mean, all these things for a few thousand dollars on, on the front end, I mean, you can save what could be maybe over $100,000 if you go into litigation. And I haven't like gone through all the records and done a study, but from just my own research going through these FTDs, it usually looks like the franchisor wins. So like, oh. you're not going to get those attorney fees back. Um, and it's going to be cost a lot of time and money if, if it does go to litigation. Totally accurate. The deck is stacked against the franchisee. That's all. That's the franchise disclosure documents. They comply with the federal law by providing FDD, but, and it's supposed to be in plain English, but, most people, when you get a 300 page document, um, tend to start drifting off. And um, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, they're complying because they tell you stuff and they do. I see it all the time where it's we can do this. We can do that. You will do that. We, we can do this. People go ahead and sign. And then sometimes they put in those questionnaires. Have you read and reviewed? Do you understand all the terms? Oh, that's another gotcha. The whole thing with the document basically is shifting risk, like I said, and making it where it's going to be extremely difficult for anybody to prevail against the franchise or litigation. There's the practical concerns of how much it costs. Then you have things now where they're, where they're trying to prevent any class actions. So you can't join together in theory to sue the franchise or, well, you know, it's a, it is a stacked deck and that's part of why 
I tell people they're paying franchise attorneys a lot of money to do those documents and everything in there is in there for a reason. And it's not your benefit. Okay. It's gonna, if it needs interpretation or enforcement. The funny thing, it was like um, the FTC franchise rule was created to benefit the consumer, but it seems like at the end of the day, they disclose everything and add in so much legal language that, it would be worse than if it was just a eight eight page document that uh, had a lot less information in there at the end of that's, the day. I haven't thought of that, but that's really interesting. And you might be right that if you had to do a, a simple form and check some boxes or something, it'd probably do a better service for people because you know the way attorneys are, they're gonna they're gonna manipulate, push, do whatever to their advantage, and if the rules say you got to disclose in plain English and we want to know this stuff. They say, okay, by God, I'll give it to you. Here it is. And, and like just- licensing agreements aren't that long. Like I looked at the Starbucks licensing agreement. I think it's like 20 or 30 pages. So say you you own a hotel and you want to add in a, a Starbucks uh, cart to the lobby or a little Starbucks in, in, in the lobby space, 30 page agreement and, um, there's pro, pros and cons to everything in life. I mean, at Vetiviz, obviously, we love all the data that's published in the FTD and required, uh, mm-hmm. but there's definitely some serious cons on, on the consumer side. Yeah, I saw um, a franchise agreement in the United Kingdom a little while ago, and I was shocked by 34 pages or something. It's become a beast <laughs> here. It's just grown its own life because... It helps the franchisors. Franchisors have the money. They're going it, to, it's, that trend's not going to reverse. You know, when they, when they issue new FDDs, that's because there's been litigation or there's some, some breach in the system that needs to be shored up. Um, it's a very much a, a, a stacked deck. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that uh, franchises are bad or it can't be successful. I don't want to seem like, you know, everything is wrong and everything. Um, obviously it does work for a lot of people, but the general public, I don't think appreciates it or sees when it doesn't work. And that's kind of, I think, I want them to go in eyes open. I think that's the nature of your business too. You want people to understand what's going on and, Without without help, I, I don't think people can do it. Yeah, it's like there's just way too much information um, where if you haven't already done it yourself and you haven't already owned franchises, there's a, a big information disadvantage where you're just going to miss too many things. And, and some of it is like I told somebody earlier this week. It's it's and I and they had read through the documents and um, I gave them credit for that and they asked good questions. But then you point out something like liquidated damages and there's an example of something that if it's not put in the agreement, that tells me something. So it's yeah. not always reading the document. It may be what's not there and yes. there's you know, people aren't going to know or appreciate or think that way. That's just. Unless you have the experience of going through hundreds of FTDs advising, advising clients on that. Wrapping up today's conversation, if there was like a single data point or a single item that a prospective franchisee should focus on 
or at least check the box on what would that what would that item be what would that data point be potential red flag or even positive point green flag uh that the franchise is worth exploring further you know i don't really think there is a a single thing i think it's a matter of of doing proper due diligence which consists of more than just contacting some franchisees or eating some of the food and liking the food. I think what you're talking about with the financial analysis is greatly underappreciated. And I think what you're pointing out in terms of how our, our franchise is doing within their industry, what's the potential, what am I going to sell it for? You have to have a game plan all the way through. And um, when oh, you're, you're raising that question with people by saying, here's what you can expect to get out of this business based on industry averages. I like that. I just tell people, you got to have an exit strategy. And are you building to that? And what do you have? How do, who are you going to sell to when the time comes? And that's part of it. If it's a small franchise brand, there, there's going to be limited interest. Well, you don't get top dollar with limited interest. Um, I think you, there's no single thing or even a couple of things that I can think of, Patrick. I think it's just you got to. Well, I think you said it right there. There's an exit strategy and no, all these factors that go into it that you have to have an exit strategy because you're probably going to only hold on to that asset for six, seven, or eight years. So you better be damn sure that you know what you're signing up for. I, I think that's a good summary. And I think most of the people are a little bit thrown when I say, what's, what's plan B? What's, what's your exit? What, what's your purpose in doing this business? And it, you know, you get some, mm, um, well, we want to make money. Okay. Yeah. It's just to me, like I say, you buy a house, you're cautious. They require inspections and, and you want to know what's hidden. Um, I'm always amazed that people are just willing to go on good faith or what they're told by salespeople. To me, you're just rolling the dice. So be smart, ask questions, um, dig hard, make sure you understand everything. Ask all your questions. You, once you sign, you know, that's the line in the sand. And I don't care how much some franchisor says we're partners. Um, you don't know that same person's going to be around tomorrow because they all have the right to sell their business. So, um, and you are signing a contract of unknowns in terms of they want to ship the business and start selling dog food. You got to start selling <laughs> dog food. Um, so you, you cannot have enough assurance that, you know, that, that you've done and asked all the questions and that you have a, a, a commitment to see it through. Um, don't, don't be lazy. Well, John, it was a pleasure to have you on. We'll be sure to include your, your contact information and link to your website for anyone that's looking to invest in a franchise, um, even look at an investor visa for those folks outside the U.S. John Usher right. also does handle immigration law. Uh, but John, mm-hmm. it was a really pleasure to have you on. And uh, I learned a lot from today's conversation. And I'm sure those listeners and those watching on YouTube uh, will have learned a lot as well. Well, I hope so, Patrick. Um, I think it's important. I always enjoy talking to you because I know your heart's kind of where my heart is and these issues are important to me and they're important to you. And um, we're both intrigued by the business. So anytime, 
happy to talk to you. Really appreciate it, John. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. You can leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast episode. If you hated the podcast episode, let us know what you thought as well as what future episodes you'd like to hear. Feel free to also drop me a line at patrick at vettedbiz.com and subscribe please to our YouTube channel, Business and Franchise Opportunities by Vetted Biz. This has been Franchise Findings Podcast. Thanks for listening.